0: is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 194,
1: Stall, Spins, and Type Ratings, coming up next in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast.
0: Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Neuville, Eric Crump, Larry Overstreet, Russ Rosleski, Tom Frick, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, folks welcome to our first
1: episode of the new year and I'm so excited to have our typical roundtable we've been doing a lot of special episodes with interviews and that type of thing love to get your feedback on that actually we've heard a lot back from some of the interviews it's been wonderful and uh, having these special episodes give you some more insight into those special events around the country we have heard from you though and people do love the conversation that we have and we love having these people here we're so passionate about aviation here at Stuck Mike Avcast and we just absolutely want to put that forth in the new year in two thousand and nineteen. Well happy new year and happy new year to my co host joining me this evening is Russ Rosleski and Tom Frick. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the new year. Yeah thanks Carl. Carl. Happy New Year And you guys are having a blast. I know the two of you are having, uh, I know, let's see, and we'll get to this. Uh, Russ, you're in a simulator, and so has Tom has been in a simulator. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on there. But uh, I know one thing I do want to say is, Russ, man, it's been a while since I've uh, we've been on the show. Uh, what have you been doing as far as flying just uh, for the past few months? Have you been able to get any good flying in in this cold season in the winter in Oklahoma? Well, absolutely I've been
2: doing a lot of flying and it has really been a long time now. I looked back and it's been since the first of September's episodes. That's four and a half months since I've been on the podcast. It feels like forever. Um, but yeah, lots of good flying, some new clients, new airplanes I've been teaching in. Um, it has been it's been really great. Uh also been working on uh, kind of moving from flight instruction back into a little bit of more piloting, too, you know, some contract pilot work. Uh, I've been teaching for quite a few years, but uh, just want to get back into, you know, freely flying the airplane. So I've got some some networking going on there and a few options coming up, uh, which uh, we'll talk about in just a little bit, actually.
1: Well, cool. You know, something you said right there uh, started me thinking. You said you want to actually fly the airplane. So you must be a good instructor. You don't actually have to, you know, jump in there and fly much. (laughs) <laughs> well, I guess that's one way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's, but it's true, you know, I, I mean, you know,
2: hundreds of hours this year and I've only touched the controls for a few of them. So uh, yeah, excited to get back
1: to flying. Awesome. Well, that's terrific. And uh, Tom, I know it's been a little while. We've been doing some special episodes and, and uh, you haven't been on for a little bit. Uh, you've been doing some really cool flying and maybe a little shift. I don't know if we can announce that in your flying life.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm I've been um, I've been trying to do some more flying too. Uh, I've, I've kind of uh, rolled back a little on the instructing and uh, have started doing some uh, flying in the corporate jet world. Um, I'm still doing the Part 135, you know, single engine local regional stuff but um also trying to expand horizons a little bit you know so um it's been kind of cool lately and uh you know as, as time goes on I'm, I'm hoping to uh kind of gravitate towards that side of the flying industry which which right now seems pretty cool well
1: that's awesome huh? and good luck to you of course you'll never get away from flight instructing uh, none of us do because it is so much fun and if you're passionate about aviation uh you'll always want to teach more about aviation let's do the pre-flight uh, before we get started with the episode, though, we do have a couple things to talk about from our sponsors. Our sponsor this evening is aviationcareerspodcast.com, It has scholarships, career coaching, and interview preparation. The scholarships guide is something that most of the folks here at Stuck My Gavcast have been interested in because you can go out there and get additional ratings add to your instrument rating, or to uh, you can get a float plane rating. It doesn't necessarily mean they'll pay for the whole rating, but you can get something paid for. AOPA, uh, Women in Aviation, all big sponsors on trying to help us move forward in our flying and in our flying life. And this is really a wonderful world, uh, Just and flying is, is something that you can talk to anybody about because it's, it's something that's we all think about someday. We're sitting there. We love to fly, and that's what these pe- people are trying to do. They're pr- trying to promote scholarships that will get other people into the cockpit and to fly and also to go forward in their ratings. You know, if you're listening to this before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we have a, a special coupon code for all the... Uh, the online courses, et cetera, and the scholarships guide, Uh, just use the coupon code on checkout. It's MLK, MLK, from now until Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a 10% discount on all products, all products out there. So try that out. Go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Also, you can click on the courses at the top as Stuck Mike Avcast also if you have any questions or you have any feedback or are interested in maybe becoming a guest on the show etc stuck mike avcast it's easy to find us it's uh stuck at gmail.com stuck at gmail.com also before we begin a couple of uh, news items and announcements uh the first one is i'd just like to say thank you uh, as a matter of fact I want to say a million thank yous to all of our listeners. We just went past that that million download mark from when we started this podcast, and uh, it 's uh, consistently growing and it's uh one of the things i think is the reason it's growing so much as we are all so passionate about flying i hear back from you and all the listeners as to why you listen it's because you you get a lot of really good information and you learn something in every episode and you can tell that we all love what we're doing so uh from myself i'd like to congratulate all those people that have worked on the show and and Tom and Russ and Victoria and everybody else, Rick Felty, you know, Bill English, Eric Crump, and everybody going back to, to Len Costa and starting this. And one thing that I want to say is we're really in the new year uh, putting forth more content, and we really want to make sure that we promote this passion for aviation. So thanks again to all those listeners, and we can't wait for 2019 to bring you more content. Very, very excited about that. Well, another quick news item, and I think we alluded to this before, is uh, Russ is actually, and I saw, a, I think I saw a picture somewhere, uh, it was in there on Facebook or Twitter or something, uh, is in a, a flight simulator, and uh, one that's actually a lot bigger than the one they have in front of me and my computer, and he's working on something. Tell us a little little bit about what it is you're you're, you're kind of working towards here, Russ, and, and what you're doing in the simulator. Well, that's right, Carl. Uh, right now I'm talking to
2: you live from a hotel in Bedford, Texas, which is, uh, just west of DFW, where I'm actually attending a Citation II type rating course at CAE SimuFlight. So, uh, we're only on day two, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I've made it, i made it two days so far. They invited me back again for a third day, so that's good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, really exciting. This is my first type rating, uh, I've got, you know, just a couple other flights ever in in jet aircraft, you know, just ride in the right seat kind of stuff. So uh, what really brought this about was just good timing, really a combination of things. I have a a friend who flies uh, as a contract pilot for some citation owners around this area, and he's been really busy with that. And uh, some other owners just hired him to uh, to fly their Learjet, too. So, he's picking up some work there, and he's just like, I got too much to do, Russ. I need some help. Um, so, that demand there, I mean, I guess, you know, especially with all the airlines hiring, pilots are short in all kinds of parts of aviation. And so, a combination of that, plus, uh, as most listeners probably know, I'm a veteran, and I have uh, some GI Bill benefits left. And, and so, the timing just worked out great. I'm using some GI Bill benefits to... Um, to pay for a lot of the cost of this type rating and i'll get done with this and hopefully have uh, some work lined up which is really exciting
1: russ you you said something about the the gi bill benefit uh and i know there's like a post nine eleven uh benefit there now is that something that you and maybe our listeners possibly if they're veterans can use towards some of their additional flight training
2: yeah, absolutely. The uh, especially the post nine eleven GI Bill, which is what I qualify for, uh, provides uh, funds for flight training. Uh, there's a, a whole lot of details about this, you know, websites and stuff. I know that you've talked about it on your other podcast quite a bit. Um, but in in general terms, yes, you can use for a lot of flight training, advanced ratings and such, like like I'm doing here with the the Citation type rating. Uh, as long as it's at an approved school, you can, you can probably do it. So uh, definitely something for veterans to look into.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Boy, that, that's awesome. And uh, congratulations on that, that you're able to do that. That's, that's uh, just one of the benefits of serving. So if you're thinking about going to the military, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. And also you get some incredible benefits. So you said you're two days in. How, now, does that mean you're just like, are you doing just ground school or are you also doing some flying?
2: Well, that's that's right. Actually, it's the whole first uh, six days are ground school. So, so we've been, yeah, we, we've been learning about the systems and the you know, electrical and hydraulic and the engines and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I won't actually get into the simulator at all until next Tuesday, which I think is actually the day this podcast comes out. So when this comes out, I'll have had my first day in, in the simulator. Uh, so hopefully, I'll still be I'll still be passing, I guess. But, but uh, for any listeners who want to kind of you know follow along with with what I'm doing I have been keeping a um, a a daily blog of course I'm on day 2 so it's not much of a track record so far <laughs> but I've been keeping a daily blog just kind of what what goes on real short entries cuz you know I got a lot of studying to do <laughs> but but just real short entries here here's what we did on day 1 here's what we did on day 2 and, and I hope to uh, continue that on so uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to that uh but it's cfiruss.blogspot.com and that'll take you right right there
1: well, that's pretty cool. That'd it, be great if you can come on and just talk about it, because if someone's uh, thinking about, hey, that'd be really neat to you know go and get a type rating, what does it cost, that kind of thing, and you know how much time is it going to take me? Some people are just up for the challenge, and they want to get a type rating. That would be so awesome to hear about everything you've done. So uh, I think we're going to really have a great episode interviewing you about what it's like to get a type rating and the citation, but in general, how to get a type rating. So I can't wait for that, Russ. That's going to be awesome and yeah it'll be a lot of fun you bet yeah and then just of course follow along on on uh the blog posts and stuff like that and also i love the pictures like i think it's on facebook i think you got some really cool pictures so follow along there too now entering cruise flight Anyway, uh, let's move on from our news items into our cruise flight. And uh, within cruise flight, we usually talk about some learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. This is going to be a lot of learning to fly. Although, uh, with that said, obviously, getting your type rating, even though it's learning, it's still, you still love doing it. It's a challenge, and it's a wonderful thing to be in there uh, playing with something new and something different and uh and that was by the way that was one thing i really wanted to do is i want to challenge everybody with this episode to get out there and think about something new a new type rating etc or uh, just any type of rating this year i would love you to get out there and just just take one step towards a new rating whatever it is just do do something when you're uh, actually after you shut off this podcast or whatever get out there and do it not now though because we got a lot of good information one of the things that's been really cool in being in Central Florida and being in Lakeland is I've been able to interact with a lot of the folks that are in the aviation business, getting away from the beach. Uh, I miss the surf, but I love hanging out with airplanes and air traffic controllers. And had a really interesting discussion with an air traffic controller who does a lot of training and, you know, we just hanging out and I said, hey, you know, just wondering, you know, for our podcast, what is something maybe you could tell me that you like to pass along or some, something that you feel that the listeners would benefit from, say, from an, any, a clearance standpoint? You know, what is it that you feel people get confused with, et cetera? And it was interesting what he came up with. He, he, there was a couple of things, but the one he said right away is the one thing I wish people knew is what's called a cruise clearance, and I know that I get a cruise clearance every so often. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Russ and Tom, have you like Russ? Have you been issued a cruise clearance any time in the past, the recent past? Never. I've never uh, asked for one or, and, or or gotten one. No. And so, and Tom, have you ever had one? Just curious. Nope. Me either. No. So, so what's interesting is that. The reason I think and and I did this as an example for a reason. I think the reason that we get confused on cruise clearances is that we don't use them very often and we're not issued them very often. So in in your defense the listener, uh, I did I did tell the air traffic controller that and I kind of think just empirically between two people is a great sample group. Uh, we've concluded that not many people are issued the cruise clearances. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, that <laughs> by, by the way, statistics anyway, the professors would love it, right? Yeah. yeah. My <laughs> Stats Professor would shoot me on that one. <laughs> I'm just kidding there, but but in all seriousness, uh, ATC does use this. I, I've had it done to me a few times, especially when I'm flying at night. Uh, to me, it's... Uh Well, I know I shouldn't say I was about to say it's kind of a cop out, but it's not a cop out. It's 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 a a way to simplify an instruction. And that's always a great idea. So ATC uses this cruise clearance and it basically allows me. It authorizes, I should say, that me, the pilot, to actually fly at any altitude from the minimum IFR altitude up to and including the altitude that was specified in the clearance so that's important so for instance if i'm given a cruise 5000 then i can actually go to anywhere from the minimum ifr up to and including the specified uh, clearance limit which actually was 5000 or altitude i should say not clearance limit Uh, you can actually here's the cool thing about the cruise clearance I like to tell people, and I'm not sure, I'll get a little feedback I think from this one, but I like to tell people it's kind of similar to a block altitude where you can ask for a certain altitude up and down. It's just look at your block altitude as your minimum in route altitude and the altitude at the that the clearance was specified. So in other words, the 5,000 that I just mentioned you can go down you can level off you can say you're at five thousand you want to head down to four thousand sure go on down to four thousand you can at four thousand feet the rides aren't so good as long as it's above the the mea above the minimum ifr altitude you're like hey you know i'm gonna go back up to five thousand so i just head on back up to uh five thousand so it's within that block that you can actually do that now here's a kicker and this is where I've seen people get in trouble and I've seen this done at, at work is when you, anytime you report leaving an altitude in any block altitude, not just a cruise clearance, you can't go back to that altitude without an ATC clearance. So let me give you an example. If I'm at 5,000 feet and I go down to 4,000 feet and the next thing I do is I tell the air traffic controller, hey, this is Cessna one two three four five, leaving 4,000 for 3,000. Uh-oh. I'm stuck there. So I cannot return to that altitude until I, get a, I have to get another cruise clearance from the air traffic controller. Uh, it's also, and this, is, and this is the reason I think that it's a great clearance, is that it also allows you to do this. You can actually proceed to and make an approach at your destination okay and this is what's really really awesome you can actually do it to a clearance limit you can do it to an airport with a with an approach on there you can go you you can do the whole letdown procedure and the approach with that cruise clearance right uh one of the things that i know people run into this problem i do too is that you know you make sure you on the ground you do make sure you you cancel your ifr but besides that so we can go from here say we had a cruise 5000 we can go to our destination descend shoot the approach and land with that clearance Uh, do you need clearance to land yes if it's a control field Obviously, you do, but normally you'll see this done a lot of times at night when the tower is closed, and they're just using a common traffic advisory frequency, etc. They'll allow you to do that. I get these cruise clearances, uh, you know, when, whenever you know I am uh, out there, say flying out in the islands and stuff like that. Sometimes I'll get the cruise clearances there. So uh, one of the things that we we make sure we do when we're on this cruise clearance is we when we're going to our destination or our clearance limit so for instance people ask me about this before but what if i my it's vfr at my destination and i want to descend well you can descend into visual conditions and then continue on to that airport. Say your clearance limit was 50 miles from uh, Lakeland uh, VOR on the 090 radial. Uh, I can do that and then actually do my approach uh, and fly that approach into the Lakeland airport on a visual approach. I can even cancel IFR once I'm in the VFR system. But importantly in this, I mentioned something about descending to a minimum IFR altitude. So what is that minimum IFR altitude? I might actually ask one of our instructors here for some help on this. Russ, uh maybe you could help me out in explaining what is that minimum IFR altitude?
2: Well, the uh, the AIM where it it talks about the cruise uh, the cruise clearance specifically uses the words minimum IFR altitude. You know, it doesn't necessarily say MEA or or anything like that. It uses minimum IFR altitude. So the best way, of course, in the aim to find anything is to look in the, the glossary, <laughs> and, and that's where it talks about minimum IFR altitude. And what is that? Well, it is the MEA if you're on, say, an airway that has an MEA, okay? Uh, if you're not, then it could be the uh, the off-route obstruction clearance altitude, you know, that altitude within the block uh, on the, uh, the low and root chart. But it can also be the, the general rule for IFR minimum altitudes, which is... Uh, if you're a non-mountainous, you just got to be a thousand feet higher than uh, anything within four miles of your route. And in mountainous areas is 2000 feet higher. So the benefit there is that, I mean, I do fly reasonably uh, often to pretty remote airports around this area, you know, especially in uh, Western Texas and such. And, and through this cruise clearance, which I did say I've never gotten or never requested, but I might change my mind now, haven't talked about it. Um, I can request cruise if I get a cruise clearance. So I can descend down to thousand feet above the highest obstacle within four miles. I mean, that might only be thirteen or fourteen hundred feet above the ground. 13, yeah, thirteen or fourteen hundred feet above the ground. So, uh, you know, that's probably going to get me below most, you know, uh, kind of marginal VFR weather. And then I can uh, get the airport in sight and just go visually. So, it does seem like a really good option in some some areas.
1: So I'm I'm glad you said that because uh, the minimum IFR altitude. And then I went to talking about the minimum route altitude. Uh, I'm glad you you did mention the the specification on the minimum IFR altitude because you, for many cases you can actually descend into VFR conditions and go to your destination, which a lot of people wind up doing. Yeah, um, that's
2: that's that's right. And the- the other thing that you notice, I didn't discuss the minimum vectoring altitude or no, anything that yeah. ATC can give you. And, that <laughs> you know, at some of these remote areas, that might be 5,000 feet. <laughs> you yes. know? So uh, so you can descend below radar contact, which is you know, very useful because if, if the controller can't get you, you know, lower than four or 5,000 feet, you might be stuck above the clouds and have to do that approach. Yeah. where this cruise clearance could really help out.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and you can actually do it, even if they can't vector you, you can still do an approach, even if their minimum vectoring altitude is say 10,000 feet, uh, as long as you're on an authorized uh, portion of that approach. So, uh, it really, or transition. And one of the things that I think is is really cool about this, and I'm hoping, Russ, you're gonna actually go out there and try it out, is ask for a cruise clearance. Uh, you know, I'd like to have a, a cruise 5000 to, I don't know, Lakeland or whatever. And, and it, it's really, it's a wonderful thing for them because now they don't have to talk to you quite as much and uh before you know we're not going to get uh i guess the adsb in and out done yet where we can actually text the air traffic control but it's almost like that you know you're on your own you get to do whatever you want that's not true you can't do whatever you want as long as you're operating within the limits of the regulations Uh, but i really one of the things that i i would like to maybe start getting people out there listening to do is challenge you to to take this clearance uh and to actually go out there and fly in, in IFR and see if you can actually uh, uh, get this clearance from air traffic control. It'll be kind of kind of interesting. I'm going to get a lot of feedback on that one, though. That's for sure. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the, the clearance is interesting because it really allows you to uh, fly IFR and then possibly to a certain limit and then fly VFR after that. Uh, but you really need to make sure that you understand what that cruise clearance is. And that if you do report leaving an altitude, that was one of the things that this gentleman had mentioned to me is that, yeah, that's, uh, if you're, you're leaving an altitude and you tell me you're leaving your altitude, you can't go back to it. That's, that's really, really important. Uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's a cruise clearance. Uh, there's different, uh, types of things that we might get involved in talking about about cruise clearances and if there's anything else that you as a listener think you'd want to say about the cruise clearance or any of your experiences i'd love to hear them you know tell us what your experience has been with a cruise clearance at uh, stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com we'd actually uh, we could read it here and uh, and i think it'd be really cool to to wonder what your experience is there so anyway let's move on to the next topic and this is uh, you know, this is going to be one of those topics. Uh, I think this is like the high wing, low wing topic, but uh, not really. There was an interesting article that was in, uh, I think it was it was December two thousand eighteen flight training. It got a lot of comments, and Ian Twombly, who's actually uh, been on the podcast before, talks about uh, uh, an issue within the flight community and uh, talks about flight training and what we can do as far as shaking off, and I hate to use this word, stalls. Um, And one of the things he discusses is maybe we should stop teaching people stalls uh, because it's not relatable to other things in life and maybe start talking about exceeding the critical angle of attack instead of using the term stalls. I know that's in all of our textbooks and things like that, but I know that when I'm out with a new student, usually after maybe a couple lessons, what I like to do is I like to talk to them and never use that word stall because they've been in a car for most of their lives. And that's like a really bad thing because that means the engine stalled. And it's like, no, that's not your engine that's stalling. What I discuss with them as I say to them is, hey, do you want me to demonstrate uh, what it's like to exceed that critical angle of attack that we talked about on the ground? And they're like, sure. you know What I do here, this is something – that I I like to do is I do it very very smoothly I'll do a very slow you know deceleration and and stall power off stall with a very light pitch down to recover from that stall and then afterwards tell them that yeah we just exceeded the critical angle of attack and we've recovered from that I said D-, and I asked them I said do you know what that's called right because we talked about it in the book and they're like um stalls and i say yep that's it or if they don't say it i'll tell them it stalls so uh, i said that's how benign they can be and that is what happens when you exceed the critical angle of attack it's an aerodynamic stall and that's kind of how i've been training it from the beginning from the get-go because what's really important to me and i'll tell you the reason i do this is that this is the customer that's going to come back and and is going to continue flight training with me, if they feel safe and comfortable with me and know that I'm not going to do anything crazy. Plus, they know that when I introduce new items to them, I do it in the the simplest manner and in their terms. I feel that they're going to come back to me. It's kind of a it's both a marketing thing. It's also something I do pretty much out of respect for my students. I know that uh, there are some instructors out there like. To jump in the airplane and do uh, stalls, and honestly, I've heard of uh, loops and rolls on the uh, first uh, lesson or two, but I think that's that's kind of the wrong thing to do there. Uh, but so, I, I really want to get some feedback. I know I'm going to get some feedback from our listeners uh, as far as teaching the stalls and and how we go about that in maybe in the way our phraseology, etc. So. Tom, I haven't, uh, we'll give you a chance to kind of, to come in on this conversation where, and what do you do? Like when you first begin talking about stalls and start introducing them to people, both in the airplane and on the ground.
3: Sure. It's, it's, you know, I agree. It's something that, um, you know, the general public, when they come out and start flying in small, small airplanes and we start using terminology like that, it, 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 creates a different picture in their mind. They don't understand what we're talking about. So bringing them up slowly to let them understand that uh, the word stall means something completely different in aviation than it does with your automobile. And, you know, I uh, agree with the way that you were teaching and and how to get uh, a student slowly up to that point to um, understand what the critical angle of attack is. And that's what's got to change to induce that stall. Um, I start introducing students to the idea of a stall um, when we start talking about slow flight so before we even start doing stalls um, that was the one thing I didn't see mentioned when it was was getting to that point of learning how to control that airplane in slow flight and and um, understanding where that breaking point is and what's going to happen when we go beyond that breaking point because there's some other safety issues that we talk about as well and um, you know um, it, it did mention talking um, you know um, Going beyond a stall and into a spin and and having to be um, you know just from a safety aspect of being an instructor and working with a student, to have them aware what can possibly happen if we go beyond certain limits. You know, it's my responsibility as the instructor not to allow that to happen and to bring the student, and I agree what you we were saying. I, I do them slowly so that the student has a good experience and they want to come back and try it again. and go, okay, that was pretty cool. let's let's see if I can do this again. And the more that I can let go of the controls and let them do, the maneuver themselves they understand it better and 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 they want to come back and do it um i can't tell you how many students that i've worked with that um Um, basically rusty pilots that were away from flying and I'd bring them back into, uh, into the cockpit and, and bring them back out to do maneuvers again. And you go out to do stalls and you can just see their whole demeanor change. And, and it was because somebody taught them by, you know, doing a power off or approach stall, um, by yanking back on the stick, pointing the nose up to the sky, full break stall, nose goes straight down towards the ground again, and then you got to try to recover from it. And, and, you know, it just scares the bejesus out of them. and, And I can understand why. You know, I, I don't think it has to be taught that way, and I, and I don't teach it that way. You know, um, eventually a student will get to that point where they can do that if they have to, um, but it's not necessary.
1: Yeah, I like that graduated approach that you take, and it keeps people coming back, and that's what we need to do. We don't need to scare them off, that's for sure. Uh, and and as far as what you talked about, spins, we're going to get to that topic next. Uh, but I, I love the fact that you're doing that, and it's probably why you keep getting students coming back to you, and also people referring you. Uh, and and I find that you know it also has to do with your demeanor, as long as you look calm, collected, I speak very slowly, now we're going to bring the nose up. That's funny. I've
3: told students that before, you know, you can see them start getting worried, and I tell them that they're not allowed to get worried. Um, what they have to do is look at me. If I get worried, they're allowed to get worried. If, I don't, <laughs> if I'm not worried, they're not allowed to get worried. I love that
1: philosophy. Well, Russ, what, what kind of philosophy do you have on, in, with your students and in general when, uh, when teaching stalls?
2: Well, this is going to be a pretty boring episode because I think we all agree. <laughs> um, so, uh, Very similar uh, to what you guys are talking about. Uh, very, very gradually. I mean, you know, some of you know some of these airplanes we train in, if you do it right, that stall is barely noticeable. And although uh, on the one standpoint, I guess that's kind of cheating a little bit or, you know, possibly leading them to think the stalls aren't a big deal, which they are. They are a serious thing. But, man, just like you guys, I've had students that. They've read about stalls, and, and they get themselves all worked up when it's, you know, lesson whatever that introduces stalls. Uh, I've had, you know, like, uh, like Tom was saying, you know, people come for a flight review and tell me, I do not like doing stalls at all. <laughs> Are you going to make me do stalls? Like, well, yeah, we probably should, especially if you really don't like them. <laughs> but, but as far as for students, you know, I might go ahead and even, you know, in a lesson somewhere before we're going to introduce stalls, it's just as we're up there doing turns and stuff, kind of the, hey, let me show you something you know, and do just the most benign one I can do. And what do you think just happened? And, you know, maybe we'll talk about on the ground or something. That was a stall. That was a stall. Yeah. They don't have to be, you know, this aerobatic, you know, uh, Sean Tucker type maneuver. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, and then, but of course through training, you know, you can't stop at just a little, little dinky stall. You know, you have to take it further, but you do it a step at a time. And then by the end, they're like, I can control this. I got it.
1: Yeah, I like that too. They just gradually moving into those those other types of stalls, a little more aggressive, that type of thing. Um, But you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and notice that both of you guys get get a lot of students, and that's probably why. I will say I've, and I'm not going to, of course, let any names out, but I do get this from some people uh, that have said, "Hey, you know, we should do spins on the first lesson and stalls because that's how we did in the old days." Blah blah blah. It's like, yeah, but then again, we're driving away students when we do that, and that's not what we want to do we want to make them feel comfortable we also want to gradually keep them feeling more and more comfortable in all the different stalls etc and like you said tom you know i like that you know look at me because when i start getting nervous yeah at the time you might want to start getting nervous but otherwise keep calm and uh, and fly on really really cool uh, but one of the things i think that um, I find is that those people that are doing that, that are are aggressively doing those stalls, and like I said, I know a guy who did a discovery flight and did a roll in a one seventy two, and I I said to him, I said, you know, dude, that that's wrong. You really shouldn't be doing that, and I I'm sure Russ, you'd you'd agree with me on that one.
2: Uh, well, yeah, anything that's outside the normal envelope of the airplane, certainly. But you know, back to what you're talking about about. Uh, you know, just caring people. If you read any books, you know, history, you know, like biographies and such, or autobiographies, especially about a- aviation in the early days, you know, the twenties and so thirties, uh, there was this attitude, even among flight instructors, of you know, you gotta, we gotta see if this person is worthy to be a pilot, you know, something like that, you know? So the first lesson, just like you're talking about, well, we're going to go do some stalls and spins. And if the, you know, if they get sick, then maybe they're just not cut out for this. And you know, oh my goodness, they didn't, didn't they want business back then too, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, but, uh, but you still, yeah, you occasionally do run across some of that attitude. Uh, but I think that's really declining now, especially with, you know, the approaches that we've talked about to, uh, to training. I mean, you you want to keep the people in. You want to uh, you want to teach them how to fly, and you don't want to scare them away on lesson one
1: and I think that's why it's growing and also because we're having those attitudes and we're also not like you said not scaring them but also doing things that aren't as dangerous right away because uh, a lot of times people start hot dogging and that type of thing I will say one thing there is some of that attitude out there and uh, and I'm not pointing fingers but if, if you're one of those people that feels that way I'd really challenge you and uh, to go out and just kind of rethink the way you're training talk it up with some other people see what they do and and uh, maybe, maybe what will happen is if you do change the way you're doing that training, maybe you'll get some more students too. So that'd be a real benefit to you also as a flight instructor, et cetera. One of the things I'd also like to talk about on uh, exceeding the critical angle of attack, and one reason I think it's important to talk in those terms, after flying a lot of different airplanes, especially airplanes that have angle of attack indicators in the aircraft, when I start talking about that, it starts them thinking more along the lines of the angle of attack and, and exceeding the angle of attack is what makes me actually stall the aircraft and it can happen anytime uh, and at any airspeed and even at any type of attitude I mean you can stall a plane straight and level. You can stall a plane inverted. Uh, you can install a plane in a turn and you could be accelerate. You can be going faster in the turn and even have the aircraft stall. So one of the things I love is the fact that we're starting to put these angle of attack indicators into some airplanes. And it is so cool that you can show them in the aircraft, what's happening with the angle of attack indicator. I, Mm, I don't think I have been in a plane. I'm, I'm now thinking in a in a single-engine airplane that has that angle of attack indicator. But I'm kind of curious. Tom, was, did the airplane we flew, did it have an angle of attack indicator? Or have you ever seen one in a in a single engine?
3: Um, the uh, the newest one. SR-22, the Cirrus that I fly, it has one. It has a G1000 NXI system in it, and it does have an AOA indicator in it. Oh, cool. The Sussans, the, the, the I don't remember any of them. Or the Pipers with AOA indicators in them.
1: Well, they're really neat to have in the aircraft. And I know, and hats off to Icon, by the way. I, I've been uh, looking at the Icon A5. Uh, been drooling all over it and stuff like that. But that's a different story. The, uh, and I see now that they put that new uh, angle of attack indicator. And what I really like about it, it looks like a wing. And and it it's really intuitive, and it's like oh wow, this they really got that right. And and I'm like man, this would be such a cool training tool just to have that in the aircraft. But uh, but uh, Rust, have you ever uh, flown with an angle of attack indicator in a smaller airplane? Uh, yes,
2: uh, I have a friend who has one of the uh, I think it's Alpha Systems, uh, one of their units in it, and uh, you know we did a little bit of you know practice with it, and it really worked well. You <laughs> flying the blue donut just. Uh, you know, all the way down the runway worked out great.
1: Flying the blue donut, so that means when you're at a specific angle of attack, it's going to be blue.
2: Right. Uh, in this case, it was, but I think that's fairly standard uh, in in the the presentations that have the uh, the up and down arrows and the the donut in the middle. So, uh, yeah, it, it that meant you were right on speed, uh, right on
1: approach speed. So it was great. Did Did you ever want to like be like Maverick and say call the ball? Well, anyway, I, I just. <laughs> 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 I just had to put that yeah. in there. <laughs> but, yeah, in the Cirrus though, what do they have, Tom? Is that is that
3: similar? It's 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 just a regular um, angle. Of, it's it's an electronic presentation, but it's a regular angle of attack indicator. So it's a needle that goes to a um, a, a, a yellow zone and then a red zone when when it goes to the stall. Um, you know, as I was, as I'm thinking of this and what, uh, Russ was just talking about the blue donut, you know, I mean, after going to, you know, lots of air shows and, and looking at vendors, I mean, it was a pretty hot, um, commodity there for a while for, um, an aftermarket angle of attack indicator to be installed into an airplane. And there was several vendors out there and they were all, you know, there wasn't anything standard. They were all coming up with all sorts of different types of presentations. Um, as Russ mentioned, the blue donut and then, uh, Um, a yellow, red, green type of presentation. They had them in heads up presentations. They had them as dials that you could put on the on the uh, panel, they had different lights that would blink in in certain places. There were small ones, there was big ones. I mean, I, I I actually was somewhat confused by the amount of stuff because there wasn't the standardization, and that's kind of like what I'd like to see. Um, what you were just talking about about having a presentation of a wing and which way that wing is going and it pointing to, whether you're getting close to exceeding angle of attack. Um, sounds you know yes that's going in the right direction so i think there's still a lot to be seen um as far as it goes i mean in um the bigger airplanes that i've flown um you know it's it's still that needle presentation and and um you know for the aftermarket stuff that are going into the single engine or what's available to go into the single engine airplanes i think still um need some refining with standardization
1: and some of these airplanes, i mean all over the market and fly- all the different like even then the jets i mean you're you're looking at uh Angle of attack indicators, and then you look at airspeed speed tapes that change from airspeed to angle of attack. Uh, you have to remember that's what's happening when you get to a certain airspeed and angle of attack. It's kind of interesting, but sure. uh, they, they're all over the place. And and really, yeah, I guess be cool to have standardization. It's just you just need to know the system you're in. But I love the fact in general that we're talking about angle of attack and exceeding the critical angle of attack as opposed to talking about just stalls. And, and that's I think it's quite helpful. That's for sure. Um, and I, hats off, by the way, to Ian Twomley about bringing this up in the article. Again, the December 2018 Flight Training Magazine. By the way, if you don't have Flight Training Magazine, you got to get it. Uh, I still read it to this day. I love uh, the simple explanations on the different systems and also about flying. Uh, you know, even for myself who's been flying for a while, I still think the most important thing is to master the basics, and that's what flight training magazine does so i I really highly recommend it by the way uh with that magazine and by we're not getting any kind of promotional uh things from from aopa the the flight training magazine i think it's still true you can get like six months for free if you're a new student uh and your instructor usually a lot of times will have those little tear off forms and go online and actually say hey i'm a student pilot and i want to get flight training magazine you'll get hooked And you'll be like me and keep reading it forever and ever and ever. I actually like to give mine out to the different flight students. I never throw out a flight training magazine. It always is passed along to somebody else so they can enjoy it and learn from it. So anyway, hats off to that wonderful magazine and Dean Twombly. In that article, though... Another part of this topic I wanted to discuss is spin training. And he didn't really go into this as much, but he did talk about the spin training. And one of the things that I required of all my CFI students, in other words, my students that are going for their CFI, for their initial CFI, is that they actually do some spin training training but with an aerobatic instructor if i didn't have a plane that was aerobatic i'd send them out and go do some yeah get the spin the endorsement make sure they do all the things check all the boxes but what i want you to do is Get out there and do some inverted spins, uh, accelerated spins, and make sure that you can recover from any attitude and any airspeed, and, and if you're inverted, what do you need to do, and with the power on, how to flatten the spin out, that type of thing, learn how to do that. Uh, those are really cool things to do, and also get out there, do some loops some rolls. Uh, that type of thing and you never know this is another reason I like doing that you never know you might get hooked into something else Uh, it is very expensive by the way (laughs) because once you start getting into some of those aerobatic planes you are going to spend a lot of money but it sure is worth it so uh, spin training not only in uh, we're talking about powered flight a lot of times but uh, it's a great thing to do in in gliders and in anything in exceeding that uh, critical angle of attack and turning it into a spin I was curious Tom I know you were out on the beach I'm not sure If this person was still at the airport But there was a a person I used to Use at your airport that you teach at uh, That uh, was doing Spin training in in a Super decathlon I think it was Terrific fellow and he was An engineer and just did a wonderful bang Up job did you get to go out and do Some of those uh, maneuvers with him or in General did you for your spin training
3: Um, I did not I, uh, I did my spin training in a Cessna 172M model um and and the only way that I was able to do it was to try to find the smallest CFI that I could so that <laughs> we could get into the into the um, correct category. Um yeah, I'm I'm a fairly large man and and as I um, started teaching and and uh, taught for a while and was eligible to make uh, or or to teach other CFIs and sign up for them, um, I did the same thing. I uh, suggested that they went and did their spin training at one of our competitor flight schools in the area. Um, because they have a, um, a, a a pit, a little pits and and they offer spin training and um, you know a, a upset recovery training in that aircraft. and it was it was a better place for them to go, um, especially because you know it was just it was too much to get um, enough fuel and enough um, pieces out of the aircraft to make it light enough to where I could go up with them and do it. So um, I, I was uh, I was on a course to try to go get some of that acrobatic training myself. As a matter of fact, I wanted to become acrobatically rated, but uh, I just haven't got to it yet. It's on my bucket list.
1: That is, and that's a good bucket list to have. And uh, boy, I tell you, but once you get hooked, you're hooked. And uh, it really is cool because I, I went out with an, an aerobatic team and uh, did my training with them. And, boy, I tell you, you learn so much by, and it really humbles you when you get into doing that stuff because you realize there's something else, a new skill that you have to learn. It's it's really, really cool. I have a friend that's doing some training in the Extra 300, and he does uh, extended envelope training, that type of thing, kind of like what we're starting to do at the airlines. We don't do the spins at the airlines, but we're doing all this, these stalls and actually doing full stalls and exceeding the critical angle of attack which is really, really cool, but uh, but if you get a chance, get out there, you'll feel a little more comfortable. Uh, I will say one thing that's been outstanding about hanging out with all these people that do some of the aerobatics, especially uh, hanging out with a lot of the fighter pilots that I fly with and understanding what they do and what they're taught uh, in some of those maneuvers where they get an unusual attitude or into a stall. Uh, boy, I, I thought I, I had known uh, quite a bit, but realized that there is another vast amount of knowledge out there uh, that, and actually implementing it is uh, really challenging. So that's totally cool. Uh, you know, Russ... We didn't ask you, but uh, as far as your spin training and what you tell your applicants, but also what you did in the past, uh, what do you do when you actually have someone that says, "Hey, I want to get some spin training at my spin endorsement"?
2: Uh, well, I have not actually worked with any CFI applicants all the way through. I've uh, provided a few, you know, just different little portions of training, so I haven't had one that's that's mine all the way through. Um, but what I have told them is. Is exactly the same thing you guys are doing, and I had one actually go do some, you know, an actual aerobatic course, you know, multiple flights, um, and in got his uh, spin endorsement that way because I, th- I think that's a fantastic idea. You know, they have the whole uh, concept of upset recovery training. It's going on in, uh, the jet world as well. And these, you know, super unusual attitudes that, uh, how to get out of this kind of thing. And it's really great training. Uh, as for myself, I did my, my spin training and endorsement at a one fifty two. Yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, I'm a, a fairly large guy too. So we, uh, we had virtually, uh, no gas on board, but you know, enough to, to get it done. But, uh, I think I I did that and I went out by myself again and did a few spins just, you know, for some more practice. But that's been years. I have not uh, spun an airplane in in years. And that's something I I really should correct uh, just, you know, for kind of currency experience. But I wouldn't feel real comfortable taking the student out by myself right now and saying, hey, I'm going to teach you how to do spins. I I wouldn't feel good because I haven't done them in so long myself. Uh, Not that I couldn't, but, you know, it's just I prefer to go with somebody a little more current in that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so that's where this, you know, the aerobatic training or, you know, somebody with a, with a pits or something would be fantastic for that purpose.
1: I'm glad you said that, that you'd go out and maybe do some more on your own and get some training because no matter how experienced you are, you know, if you haven't done something in a while, yeah, you could probably do it. That's fine. But getting with an instructor and doing those maneuvers, I think is, is a great idea uh, because it, it also helps you in teaching that other person and you watch that person teaching you and then you can pass that along. I mean, me especially, I would actually, if I had to teach someone how to do spins, I'd go out and say, hey, you know, show me how you teach how to do spins of of one of my friends that teaches at one of the schools, so... Good idea. I tell you, I think uh, I'm, after we've been talking, I want to go up and do some spins, loops, and rolls. So I think that's uh, something that I'm going to do fairly shortly. As a matter of fact, I uh, was to—I was on the course to do some loops and rolls in a steerman. I think I'm going to go ahead out to the beach and, and actually do that. Tom, I think I, I'm going to come out your way, as a matter of fact.
3: oh, well, that'd be Awesome. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny cause, uh, I was thinking about the spins and, and how it goes and relates even back to those stalls, you know, um, spins were something that I was fearful of when, when I came my turn and I was working on my CFI and I had to go out and do spin training and, you know, I practiced them. I have a, a little makeshift simulator at home, you know, I I got a. Um, a setup with a yoke and pedals and the throttle quadrant and a screen and, and was running flight sim 10 and and I did it in that a whole bunch of times just to see what the dynamics were of, of you know before I went out and did it was was practicing them there, which ironically in that particular program it would spin the Cessna 172 would spin to the left, but every time I put it in a right hand turn spin, it would flat spin and it would let me recover from it. But I could never get it to spin properly going to the right. Anyway, the day came that I had to go out and fly it in the plane. And, and what I was um, amazed by was just how benign the maneuver actually was. I mean, when once I went up and actually did the spins and recovered from them, I thought they were going to be so much worse than what they actually were. And and it was actually um, – it, it was – fairly easy to get into the spin, and it was fairly easy to get out of the spin, especially in 172. It just wants to fly straight and level. It, uh, um, the last couple of them, it almost felt like I was forcing it to stay in the spin uh, so that I could break back out of it again. So uh, it's it's kind of funny that we talked about stalls and spins tonight and the and, and, uh, kind of a little bit of the fear factor that goes with it, because uh, I can relate to that.
1: Yeah, one thing that I know from, from past experiences, being afraid of those, and then when you actually see it just like you said it's like wow this isn't so bad and um, one thing though I, I will encourage people I know you're going to probably want to get out there if you're an instructor listening hey I want to do some stalls and spins uh, try to hold yourself back don't do a spin with your student uh, make sure you'd use a, you know, you're properly loaded you use a proper aircraft and uh, maybe uh, encourage them to go out and get some training uh, in doing spin recovery I know the first time I did a spin my instructor was kind of angry with me because I wasn't Holding enough rudder, and he said, This is what happens if you don't hold enough rudder, and boom, he kicked me into a spin and in a 172, and it kind of it uh, scared the heck out of me, and uh, I didn't really appreciate that. It was exciting, yes, it got my heart rate going, but but let's not do that. I hope you get that from this whole episode. Don't scare your students. We want them coming back, and the reason we want them coming back is we want to have a purpose for this podcast. We don't want to scare away <laughs> these people, but let's let's keep them here. That's for sure. So so let's do that. But uh, anyway, as far as spin training, I think we we've talked enough about that. Unless anybody else, uh, Tom, do you have any comments you want to add to this before we move on?
3: Um, no, I was just thinking. You know, the worst worst spin I ever had was the one I wasn't expecting. A student who put me into a spin that that uh, was completely unexpected. You know, uh, was in a stall situation and kicked over on a rudder and put us into a spin that that well, obviously got us back out of again. But that was a uh, that was an exhilarating experience.
1: <laughs> so
3: you didn't see it coming because you weren't expecting him to kick the rudder like that, were you? Uh, no, I, have, I still to this day can't. You know, I've replayed it over in my mind over and over again. I cannot imagine why this individual chose to, to push on the rudder as hard as he did in that situation. You know, But it, it was a good, good learning lesson for me as a CFI and, and it definitely added to the diligence that I have now when I, when I fly with students.
1: That's awesome. I'm glad you related that because we really do have to be diligent and uh, be prepared for anything when we're out there doing stalls with our students and and spin training. You never know what's going to happen. Well, gosh, guys, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm really excited uh, that the both of you are going in and doing something different, getting a new type rating, et cetera. uh, I'm actually super-duper excited about this year because uh, I just came from uh, right before this, a meeting with the flight team at the college, and uh, just just starting off the new year is just so exciting because everybody wants to to do something new and different, and I hope everybody else will, will do the same. Our picks of the week. But uh, let's move on to our after landing checklist and our picks of the week. Guys, it seems like it's been a while since we've done a pick of the week. Uh, One of the things that I did uh, over uh, Christmas, I got a a coupon or a uh, a gift certificate, excuse me. And I went out, and I love Amazon, and I bought myself a Blu-ray DVD. And, uh, of course, what did I get? But I got a movie about her of course and it's called Living in the Age of Airplanes it's a National Geographic film I didn't, I don't think I realized it when I purchased this but it's actually directed, uh, Harrison Ford's in it but Brian Terwilliger is actually the person that directed it and he did another really cool video that I absolutely love, it's called One Six Right and so when I saw that I said oh my god I gotta watch this right away I watched that movie and it was absolutely inspiring and anybody who's into aviation because one, one of the things that I was I was a little fearful of is the fact that all, all they're going to talk about is just airliners and that's it but it really really didn't do that it brought that passion of aviation into this documentary on how airplanes have changed our world and our lives and have brought us so much closer together. Whether it's me taking off from here in Lakeland, being able to fly to the Keys in an hour and a half as opposed to driving for eight hours, or driving over to Orlando International Airport and heading to China. It really has made this a smaller world. It has profoundly changed our lives. And he was able to take that and show us in not just the airline world, but all over, the world and in different modes of transportation seaplanes everything and oh my god the seaplane sequence in there was phenomenal and you have to see how he put that together that was absolutely cool uh, you got to watch this movie. I, I just can't say enough about it, obviously. It got me pretty darn excited, and uh, I went on and watched all the special features on, on how they put that together. But hats off to the director, Brian Terwilliger, and also uh, Harrison Ford for the wonderful job he did in narrating this. So it's uh, Living in the Age of Airplanes. It's a National Geographic. Get it in Blu-ray. Uh, I think you can rent it online, that type of thing, but have it in the show notes there. Uh, anyway, so that's my pick of the week. Uh, Russ, what? is your pick of the week
2: well so there i was all good stories start out that way right <laughs> um i was i was at leadville colorado and i was uh, doing a little bit of mountain flying training with one of my uh, clients and in the fbo there i ran across a book called flying colorado mountain weather by margaret w lamb and you know sitting on the rack and i can't pass up a good flying book especially if it's staring at me in the face and uh, <laughs> especially especially if i can uh, you take a uh, tax write off on it anyway <laughs> as an instructor but but uh so I bought this book and and it's great i mean it it's all about v- very specific um examples of weather uh, especially in Colorado but of course the uh you know the lessons apply to many different parts of, of the world but it's got full color photographs of all kinds of different you know types of cloud formations but it goes really Several steps more than you know the the weather you read about in uh, you know most uh, flight training type publications. You know, to, well, yes, okay, this is what a cumulonimbus looks like and that kind of stuff well this talks about different effects different times of day how you can tell what's developing i mean she goes through examples of you know she flew through one pass at 10 a.m and saw this going on and sure enough when she came back a few hours later there was you know building clouds and then two hours later was storms and how to identify all that kind of stuff things like uh, some examples of some accidents that occurred where they probably shouldn't and one of the factors was the difference in the altimeter settings between Leadville airport and Aspen airport. And she showed that if it was more than a a certain amount that you could actually get some very interesting weather effects and, uh, just a fascinating book. Uh, she has lived in, in that area and flown around Colorado for, uh, I guess her whole life or, or something or something close to it. Anyway, a long time. And, um, so really well, Thought out book, well written. I learned a lot from it, and I'll be uh, loaning it out or recommending it to uh, anybody I fly with in the mountains, certainly. Um, But you can, you actually can't get it off Amazon. I I looked there. I know that's where most people, myself included, usually go to first for books, but you can get it from Sporties and some of the other uh, pilot type uh, supply shops. So uh, we'll have at least one link down in the uh, show notes. But yeah, Flying Colorado Mountain Weather by Margaret Lamb. Definitely recommended.
1: And we'll have uh, a link in the show notes, and I'm always excited about a book I can't find in Amazon. <laughs> so thanks for I that. Know. <laughs> I know. I was
2: surprised, too. It said, currently unavailable at Amazon, but yeah, you could buy it at other places, so I'm not sure what that
1: means. Wow. That must be, it's a very niche book, and I, that's awesome, dude. Yeah. So I definitely, definitely look into that, and of course, you can find all these in, in the show notes here. So thanks for that one. Tom, what is uh, your pick of the week?
3: Yeah, so I was sitting around here and, uh, you know, just thinking about cooler weather and all that stuff, it's it's the beginning of January, you know, so I, I know that most of the country is feeling the effects of winter about this time of year and uh, the temperatures have really gotten low. And I was perusing through and remembered something about, um, you know, the uh, the islands of the Bahamas. And you know, they, they have put together a, a really nice site um, to how to get into the Bahamas, how to get into and how to leave the Bahamas. So. Um, The Bahamas Division of Tourism has um, um, a page that's dedicated specifically to to private pilots and, um, gives them all the information they need to know on all the paperwork they need to submit and how to get into the country and how to get back out of the country. So even if you're living in the middle of our country and thinking, well, the Bahamas are so far away, I'm probably not getting there. This is like a, a really cool exercise, even just to go through and just to to figure out how you would do that, you know, just to get out, Um, you know, the, the paperwork that you need to file and, and how would you deal with customs here and there and, and, and do all that stuff. And it's all spelled out on this page. Um, I, I've met, um, people from the islands of the Bahamas. They usually set up a booth at the air shows. Um, they're really informative. They provide all sorts of, um, uh, information. I have, you know, when you go to these booths, you can get all this stuff, hard copy and stuff like that. So here in the middle of wintertime, I, I thought it'd be really cool to uh, think of some place warm and, and tie it in with aviation. And this is what came up for me. So that's my pick of the week.
1: And if you get a chance, I know it's cold, it's uh, January, check it out, Bahamas.com, because you know what, you'll feel warmer just looking at the pictures of all that beautiful water and clear blue. Exactly. That's what I was doing. It's like, (laughs) oh, yeah,
3: it just, you know, just warm you up just looking at the pretty pictures, you know, so, and then, and then, and then challenge yourself as a pilot, you know, how would you do that? If, if you were going to fly and come into Florida and, you know, do the hop and go over to the other side, again, go over to the Bahamas and spend some time there to go visit visit an island where they've got swimming pigs or, you know, just lay out on the beach or whatever you want to do as you're, you're going through there because, um, you know, they're very welcoming um, in the Bahamas and it, it's, a, it's a pretty cool place to visit. But uh, I think, you know, just from an instructional standpoint, my, the instructor in me says, you know, this would be something cool to do just, you know, as, even if you're sitting at home in the snow and, and, and looking at all these nice beach pictures, how would you create that flight plan? How would you create all that paperwork? And, and, and this is a, a resource to do that.
1: Yeah, an awesome, awesome page they've put together with all that information on there. Of course, we'll have links in the show notes. I'm glad you brought this up. They're terrific people, and they've been very open to allowing us uh, in the U.S. to fly over there, especially even in light sport aircraft. So check it out. Really great pick of the week. I'm going to sit here and just look at all the pictures for the rest of the night. But that's it for our show. And uh, thanks for those picks of the week from both from Tom and Tom. And also from Russ, the after landing checklist. Boy, this has been this is gonna be a great year. I can't wait to see all of you stopping by at different air shows. Uh, you'll probably see me after you this comes out. I may be at Sebring this year. Uh, that's a really a good air show for the light sport aircraft or affordable aircraft. Also, of course, in the next month, a we'll, uh, month and a half later, we'll be over at Sun and Fun. And at all, as many events as we can, look for those and look for uh, me in the new year going out and lecturing at some of the airports. Now that we have a presence at Lakeland, we're going to start doing some seminars there, both on the career side and also on these topics like stalls, spin, and also doing approaches and landings uh, also there's another thing coming up it's called the uh, I didn't mention it but it's a Florida pilot conference that's coming out make sure you check that out we're gonna have links in it I know that Tom and I will both be uh, lecturing there and uh, the tickets are gonna be going on sale or are on sale right now it's over at the Florida hotel right next to the Florida mall And it's called the Florida Pilot Conference. And uh, it's on May 4th, uh, 2019. For all those people that are Star Wars uh, aficionados, just remember, may the 4th be with you. So uh, on that note, uh, we'll... (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Uh, And he made that one up, and I I tell you, it was terrific. Uh, Chris Bazal is the one that's uh, coordinated this, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to do. And, uh, Tom, I think you're doing a lecture on using, I think, iPads. Is that right? What do you do? Yeah,
3: or, or just you know, uh, you know, electronic flight bags, gotcha. you know, things like that. Yep.
1: Awesome, cool, awesome. That'll be a lot of fun, and I'm doing a lecture on uh, your instrument oral exam. Uh, common mistakes uh, even the pros make and also doing another one on uh, arrivals and departures tips tricks and common errors so check that out and you can find all that information in the show notes here happy new year to everybody I know this is the first time we've all been able to get together after the new year again a million thank yous to all those listeners and I want you to, to challenge you today to go out and try to do something in aviation and get that passion keep it going no matter what it is go to an air show, read a book like Mountain Flying, but do something, get back in aviation, do some flying, be safe out there, and we'll talk to you next episode.
0: You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast.